0: This is episode fifty of the Mission Nexus podcast. Wow! Can you believe we're at the fiftieth episode of the Mission Nexus podcast? It's hard for me to believe, but here we are. And welcome! Glad you're with us. We're going to have a, a very different interview today, and then after that, we'll be talking about the Mission Leaders Conference and some other things. So you want to stick around for that? Our sponsor today is assistant. And if you're not familiar with them, they provide outsourced office help. And believe it or not, we here at Miss Nexus use to to assistant. And the way it works is we have a, uh, well, you you can't really call it a virtual assistant because it's a real person. And uh, we treat her almost as if she's part of our staff. She's awesome. Her name is Hannah. And uh, she helps with the posting of these podcasts as one of her tasks. So if you're looking for some additional office help, and bandwidth to your administrative load, I suggest you send a text or WhatsApp to the CEO of TwiSistant. That's right. I'm about to give you the direct number. It is 416-877-8261. We've been extremely satisfied, and I think you would too. So thank you for that uh, sponsorship. Let me know if you're interested in sponsoring the podcast. Well, today's interview is going to be with John Baxter Brown. Uh, John holds the same role that I hold, except in the UK. Their association is called Global Connections. And there's a lot happening right now, obviously, with Brexit. Um, Is it going to happen? When's it going to happen? What are the ramifications going to be? And, of course, many of our mission agencies have British staff. And I thought it would be good for us to be aware of what the ramifications are For this whole process as it unfolds in the uk so let's roll the interview and then i look forward to talking with you more on the back side of it well on the call today we have john baxter brown and um as everybody knows there's been a lot of talk about brexit and even just in the last two weeks just dramatic events and it affects the world of missions and we have all of these uh, british missionaries out there it's going to affect them but also Oftentimes, with our internationalized agencies, we have leaders who may not understand the situations that people on their team are facing, and uh, this could be the case here. So I thought I'd ask John to come on and tell us a little bit about uh, the Brexit process from his perspective, he gets a little background. Um, John is the head of Global Connections, uh, which is similar to Missio Nexus in the UK. Uh, John, thanks for being on the call with us today. You're
1: welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Can you just, people probably don't know who you are that are listening on the call. They're going to mostly be in the missions community, but could you give us a little background on how you arrived at this uh, role? Yeah, sure. I mean, for me,
1: I became a Christian um, at about 7.45 p.m. on the 6th of July, 1980. And for me, it was a very dramatic uh, encounter at the back of a little uh, countryside Baptist church. Um, And the process that led up to that was partly the the need for an emotional crutch for myself i needed something bigger than me to get me through life um but also the question i was asking is it true if jesus actually did die and come back to life then this was the most important thing that uh had happened in the entire history of the universe let alone our little planet three know the rocks three planets out from the Sun or whatever it is Um, anyway for me therefore becoming a Christian involved this commitment to wanting to find ways of sharing the story of Jesus with everybody uh, across the world and this sense this very deep sense of a call to evangelism and mission started for me when I became a Christian Uh, So in the intervening years I started by getting a degree in theology, working as a freebooting freelance evangelist, working for a local church, working for a collection of local churches, uh, working for an Anglican diocese, uh, then working for churches together in England, the ecumenical body uh, in England, and then going on from that I was led to go to the World Council of Churches as a consultant in evangelism, um, and then since then, I've worked with the World Evangelical Alliance and done some contract work with Compassion International, World Vision International, um, and all the time. It, the question I'm asking is: How does whatever it is we're doing contribute to world evangelization? How is it making Jesus known? Um, uh, there came a point um, twelve months ago where this job with Global Connections opened up, uh, and I went I talked to the chair and a few people and trusty advisors uh, and was encouraged to apply for it so I did and I'm terribly excited by it because what we're wanting to do here is uh, you know fan into flame the sense that the UK church has something to give to the global church and that particularly we've still got a contribu- contribution to make to the task of world mission and evangelism uh, we're, we're not as big and as numerically powerful as we used to be as a Christian community in this country, uh, but we've still got something to give, and we need to give it. And I, right now, at this point in history, I think we're standing on a bit of a cusp, because uh, and this is where we come on to Brexit. The one of the one dimension of Brexit for many people is uh, is it anti the rest of the world? It's anti immigrants coming here. It's Uh, anti-close relationships with our nearest neighbours in Europe. It's wanting to stand our own two feet. Uh, And there's quite a strong sense of that in some places. Hmm. Whereas I think now it's an opportunity for the church to actually stand up and say, no, we are open to the world. We want to be engaged with the world, the entire world. Uh, And we do not want to put up these walls, these barriers uh, that some people who support Brexit want to put up we as a Christian community need to be in a place where we're saying we're going, we're going to keep on going and we're going to keep on engaging with the world in, in all its glory and all its messiness.
0: Well, <clears throat> I wish we had time today. We could talk a lot about nationalism and its impact on missions and even get into uh, kind of more ethereal questions about what's good and what's bad about nationalism. Um, That would be fascinating, but I do want to make sure we stay focused on Brexit. Could you give us just um, in broad strokes, how how did we arrive at where we're at today uh, with where Brexit is at? And and in fact, when I first thought about doing this with you, it was before the the recent Boris Johnson changes. Um, Now, I think Americans and Canadians are very aware of Brexit, but I don't think they really understand how we got to where we're at today
1: yeah and broad brush strokes um are are good and i'll speak in generalizations but i would want your listeners to remember that any single point i make one could drill really deep down and there will be nuances that i will miss out because i'm talking in a generalization um and that's inevitable there's always been within the uk context people who are very pro being part of Europe. And there's, but there's always been this subtext in some parts of our uh, nation uh, that sees eu- integration into the European Union as a bad thing. Um, and that sometimes has come to the fore in political debate quite strongly. And a few years ago, a group emerged in the Tory party, in that's a conservative party in the UK, that was very strongly anti-Europe. Uh, And then there was a group that was also very strongly pro-Europe. And within the Conservative Party, you got this tension developing that David Cameron, then Prime Minister, tried to resolve by having a referendum in 2016. Um, And that probably, uh, you know, we we can't be absolutely sure of his thinking on this, but it seems that what he wanted to achieve was by having a referendum that would vote Remain, he could settle the dispute within the Tory party, within the Conservative party, so that he could get on with governing the country. And that backfired in a major way when the Leave campaign won the referendum. And since then, we've had two prime ministers now who have tried to honour the outcome of the referendum, but not been able to do it because they have not been able to find consensus in, in political terms and so mrs may failed to do that uh, and she therefore uh, was forced out of office earlier this year uh, johnson has come in with a much more brash approach he's completely unwilling to talk of compromise or consensus and he just wants to walk us out uh, the uk out of the eu um and the date he has set which is not entirely arbitrary, but is, only has a little bit of logic behind it. It's the 31st of October. Uh, a parliament have exploded with in terms of objecting to this. They do not want us to leave with no deal. That means that we would have have uh, we'd be completely on our own from the 1st of November with no trade agreements whatsoever with the EU. Uh, No formal free trade agreements, no agreements about the movement of people and goods between the UK and mainland Europe and the Republic of Ireland. Uh, And most commentators view no deal as an absolute disastrous way forward. And the Parliament have said, no, we don't want that. And Johnson has therefore taken various steps that are highly controversial in this country.
0: Okay. If we could, let's get, let's come back to what no deal might look like, but um, let me just back up for one second. Um, I, I think oftentimes uh, probably more Americans than Canadians are a little bit mystified by the parliamentary system because it's not what we're, you know, we, we have and we're used to. Tell us a little bit about this idea of a prime minister forming a government? Because I think, I think something that's confusing for us is the existing leader being able to call an election whenever they want. Um, not, I mean, I lived in Europe, I get it, but I don't think many people do. So could you give us kind of an idea of what could be going on here, particularly with, with Johnson at the present time, et cetera?
1: Yeah, we have a system of voting here called first past the post, uh, which means that each constituency can have an MP and vote on their MP going to represent us in Parliament. And the first-past-the-post system means that uh, whichever party either gets an absolute majority or nearly gets a majority of n- in terms of the numbers of MPs in the House of Commons is invited to form a government. So we do not vote for a Prime Minister. We vote for a party. Um, and we only vote for a party through voting for our, our, our local member of parliament
0: and i think another important part for people to understand in the u.s is it's not as um you don't have like democrats and republicans so starkly that there's sub parties and that they partner together correct
1: well yeah we have the the labor party which is towards the left wing the conservative party which is towards the right wing but then we have quite a number of other parties here we've the liberal democrat party Different regions of the country uh, have their own parties as well. So there's a Welsh party, um, Clyde Cymru. There's several different political parties in Northern Ireland. Uh, And then in Scotland, we have the Scottish Nationalist Party. And then we have the Green Party and and smaller ones. So we've got quite a complex system, but the first past the post tends to bias towards the two biggest parties. Uh Smaller voices. Uh, have to work really hard to get heard. And if they do form a coalition government, which is not that common, uh, the smaller party has to um, be submissive to the larger party in terms of most of the policies and so on. Right, It's not a proportional representation system, and we're not voting for an executive like you do in the States um, where the... As far as I understand, in the States, you're looking very much more at who is going to be president, the leader. Here we are looking very much more at the party rather than the person. So when a prime minister in this country uh, resigns or steps down, the normal process uh, would be that somebody else from within that party, if they can get the majority of votes, from within the party, within the members of parliament alone, uh, they would then take on the post of prime minister. And so um, initially Mrs May uh, became prime minister through that process. And then when she stepped down, Johnson became prime minister simply because he got more votes from initially the members of parliament in the Conservative Party and only the conservative members of parliament. And then the members of the Conservative Party nationally, which I I think is only about 150,000 people. So Boris Johnson uh, was voted in to be prime minister uh, with 0.14% of the population supporting him, directly being involved in, in his nomination. So he came in actually in quite a controversial manner because quite a lot of people... Suggest that he does not have a democratic mandate from the country to govern. And that's partly where so many of the current uh, controversy and difficulties lie. The,
0: the amazing thing is how many parallels that has to our situation where our current president didn't get the majority of votes. He got the majority of electoral votes. So some question whether he's got a mandate, etc. That this is all happening simultaneous in the world with different countries. It that, that it is it is fascinating that way. Um
1: it is. And if we as you say if we had more time I think we could really explore where the right wing rise in nationalism is, is coming from. Because it's happening quite in, in lots of places, lots of different countries across the world. It's not just an Anglo Saxon US right.
0: thing. Yeah. Um let's return back to the to the no deal ramifications because I think for uh, cross-cultural organizations that's probably the the biggest um, scary thing to think about. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what it means? Uh, Let's say there's a mission agency out there and they've got some workers, some of them are British. What are the implications for those people?
1: It depends where the people work in the world. If We have, if there's an organisation, whether it's based in the States or the UK or anywhere else for that matter, that has workers from the UK within an EU country, their status is going to be questionable if we leave with no deal. What that might mean, for example, is if they've been living in Spain or France or Germany long term, they would need to... Uh, and quite desperately need to get formal permission to stay living in those countries. Um, and it, it could well be that uh, some countries, for example, in Spain, where there's an issue of sovereignty over the Gibraltar, it could be that Spain might want to see UK nationals living in Spain as... Um, I'm trying to think of a a decent term, but let's say bargaining chips, although it's too much of a crude term, uh, in trying to resolve the issue of Gibraltar. So their their status, UK nationals living in the EU, working as missionaries, their status is questionable. If they come back to the UK um, or leave that country, they might well have to face issues about visa, about proof of residency, the proof of being able to work in the country. There could well be issues of transferring funds from outside the EU, particularly from the UK, back into the EU or the other way around. So Hmm. the adaptations are quite considerable.
0: Um, How about in regards to healthcare?
1: That's that's a difficult one. We have a thing called the EHIC card, which is an agreement between the government's of the EU nations, that so means that we can get access to healthcare straight away uh, and that our governments will pick up some level of responsibility for the costs involved. No deal would mean that the UK drops out of EHIC, which would mean that anybody from the UK travelling anywhere else in the world would need to have health insurance, full stop, um, and that would apply, probably would apply, unless um, to UK nationals living in Europe unless the country in which they live enters into some form of agreement about caring for and you know watching over the health of uh, third country nationals within their jurisdiction there's no guarantees there and probably the only safe thing to do would be for any UK missionary to carry a a pretty comprehensive health insurance package Mm -hmm. Uh, It's simply going to be such a nightmare. Um, And I think the other point to bear in mind too with all of this is nobody actually knows exactly what a no-deal would look like. So that there will be a lot of implications that we will only discover once we get into a no-deal scenario, if we do, um, that we cannot predict. You know, the law of unforeseen consequences will kick in. And by definition, we don't know what those implications will be, be quite significant. And it works out the other way, too, um, that EU nationals living in, in the UK um, could face very severe problems about proving their right to live here and to stay here. And that includes, obviously, missionaries from the EU who are working in the UK. It's it's going to be a complete mess from that point of view.
0: Now, um, how about so today we're talking? Actually, it's September tenth. Okay, this is actually not going to air till October first. Right. Um, so I'm working ahead. Next week is our big, huge conference. We'll have about a thousand mission leaders together. So I'm trying to get this done before that hits. So a lot could change, and I want to make sure listeners understand that. Um, But what do you see as the near term? Actually, let me ask one other question before we get into the future. And that is, if I'm not mistaken, there is a deal on the table that's been rejected. Is that correct? There's
1: a deal that's been rejected three times by the parliament, yes.
0: Three times, okay.
1: And the, the fundamental issue is... Uh, At the moment, the only land border that exists between the United Kingdom and the EU is that between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, with the Republic of Ireland being part of the EU. Um, And as most of your uh, listeners will probably recall, for many years we had uh, severe issues on that border called the Troubles, where we had... Um, quite a lot of terrorist violence uh, going on and the and the anxiety about having a border between the northern ireland and the republic of ireland is that that could easily reignite the troubles and we could easily see more bombs uh going off and people being killed because there's a deep sense of identity issues that, that goes on there and both the Northern Ireland through the UK being a member of the EU and the Republic of Ireland being a member of the EU meant that that border could become um, what we're calling a very soft border. If we leave with no deal, it becomes a hard border. And it, so it was around that issue that what the politicians are calling the backstop, uh, that the controversy has, has arisen. And that's got, that's got big implications, particularly for mission agencies in Northern Ireland.
0: Yep, yep, very, that's very helpful to hear. Okay, okay. so let's look forward a little bit. Um, again, today's September 10th, but there's plenty of things planned here in the near-term future. Um, I, I'm not going to really try to get you to speculate if we'll get a deal or not, because I've read enough to know that, you know, it's very much up in the air. Yeah. Um, but what would you say are, what do you, what do you see happening now over the next two months?
1: <laughs> I think that is almost an impossible question. Um, I was at a, a diaspora conference over this past weekend. And uh, one of the visitors from Europe who was over was talking about how things can change, you know, within a matter of weeks. And I was sitting there thinking, actually, things can change within a matter of hours at the moment. Yes, yeah. it has been that uh, up and down that we wake up in the morning. We actually sometimes don't know what the what the situation will be at the end of the day. So, you know, Parliament now has gone into what's been technically called the prorogation of Parliament, which means that our government, our Parliament, does not meet now until the fourteenth of October, I believe it is. So the political Situation is is now just been moved into a completely different different sphere. So it, one scenario could easily be that uh, the government, in the intervening weeks, find a way of brokering a deal with the EU that would be acceptable. Um, I think it's unlikely, but it's theoretically possible. Uh, another possibility would be that. Boris Johnson is, resigns or is forced from office and we get a different government in place. Um, again, I wouldn't want to say how likely that was, but it's certainly a theoretical possibility. It, another option is that in the intervening weeks we could have violence on the streets of the UK. Um, there's already been a little bit of that between particularly when leave demonstrators and remain demonstrators demonstrating in the same locality um we we, you know it's it's fairly minor in a sense in that it's missiles bottles bricks that sort of stuff being thrown around but that could escalate so it's really difficult to know what's going to happen and in the inter intervening time um i'm trying to encourage our mission agencies in the uk to make contingency plans the difficulty, obviously, is that we don't quite know what the contingencies are going to have to involve. Uh, so there's, there's quite a lot of work to be done in the next few weeks by mission agencies to mm-hmm. and secure, um, particularly the well-being of staff.
0: Yep. Okay, well, um, let's kind of land the plane here. You just mentioned, you know, there's a possibility, for example, of violence. We want to pray against that. Do you, have, do you have any other prayer requests that you would suggest people be praying for?
1: Yeah, there's a, there's a couple. Um, I, one of the saddest things about this whole scenario is that the level of public and civil discourse has dropped significantly. Um, so what we're finding too often is that instead of trying to debate issues in a, in a civilized manner, insults uh, and sometimes quite horrible things are being said about the opposition. So, yeah. And the, the divisions, instead of being healed, are being deepened. And the church, we, as a Christian community, we need to find a way of helping bring some level of reconciliation between these diametrically opposed groups of people. Um, that needs to be at a, at a local level, as well as at a national level. Um, and, you know, I know the Archbishop of Canterbury has uh, been talking about doing that in some level at, at national level, but all all churches need to find a way of, of being communities of reconciliation and peace. And I would pray and hope that people would pray that they could find a way of doing that in such a way that it en- uh, enhances the mission of the gospel, uh, and isn't simply a way of papering over cracks, but allows people to find um, and to see demonstrated through the churches the reality of you know Christ breaking down the wall of hostility. Uh, that is a big need here. Um, another big need is that for those EU nationals living in this country who are feeling desperately insecure, some of them, and UK nationals living in Europe, some of whom, again, are feeling insecure and frightened for their well-being, for clarity about their status in whatever happens in the future. Yeah. Uh, You have people's lives being ripped apart. uh, Okay. really very sad. So peace and reconciliation and a, a sensible way that can help resolve some of these tensions that are getting... Ever more deep.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we will be praying. Um, it, it is it is uh, difficult, and of course, you know we're having uh, similar kinds of terrible discourse here uh, on this side of the pond too. So, we we can relate. Um, well, thank you very much, John, for being on the call today. Appreciate it. It was really really helpful.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a a privilege. Um, And always a delight to talk with you, Ted.
0: Well, great. Hey, sorry about some of the sound quality issues there. I've tried a lot of different tools, tried a new one this time around. They don't always seem to work out the way we want them to. Uh, But anyway, we do edit them and uh, we'll see how we can do better in the future. A few notes, and then I'm going to answer a question and tell you about something I like. So first of all, just a reminder that our webinar series kicks up into more intensity now. And uh, the, the next one up is new ways to tell the old story. I think you'll enjoy that. Another thing I'll mention to you is we just released the newest EMQ, as well as an infographic that came out last month on China. The online infographic ha- is, has a um, augmented reality uh, component to it. That's kind of cool. I hope you get a chance to see that. The CEO report just came out. We do that every couple of years. Michael Van Heiss on our team puts that st- that that puts that together and it's fantastic. And I just almost to the point where I just say I challenge you to find another uh, CEO report that's quite done with the quality that they got there um, in that report. Love to have more people participate in it uh, but I think you'll find it interesting and the other report that is about to drop is the Church Mission Leaders Report. Um, one, one last little commercial here for an upcoming event. Uh, we do an event called the Denominational Roundtable. It uh, is typically for smaller denominations, although it's not always been the case. It happens in December, and it's a small group, but it's a very good group. I've enjoyed being a part of it, and I've learned quite a bit. So, now, the question from the mailbag is a simple and easy one. How did the Mission Leaders Conference go? I've actually been spending some time here pouring over reviews for the last couple of days. I want to make a few high-level observations for you. Uh, we, we do an evaluative uh, indicator called an NPS or Net Promoter Score. It's the industry standard. And this year, our score was 55. Anything over 50 is considered EPIC. And uh, we got a 57 in the year 2015. So, right kind of after the merger had happened, um, I had just come on board. Steve Moore actually had kind of put that one together. 57 is the highest we've ever gotten. This was a 55, and it's just a superb score to have. So, we're thrilled about that. Uh, I guess from my perspective, just an overwhelming amount of goodwill. I, I kind of saw this as the best conference we've done. Uh, we did have one speaker that we weren't excited about um, just because his, uh, his presentation was not really focused on the Great Commission the way that we think it needs to be understood in our community. And uh, we pulled that actually from the online stream just because we don't want to pro- propagate that particular view. But other than that, uh, just a stellar, stellar event. And if you look at the comments, 40-some percent of the participants said of the four components they could choose from, it was the uh, workshop and seminar series that happens that was the most helpful and profitable. So if you haven't come to the conference before or if you've missed for a few years, love to see you back next year. Next year, all year long, our theme is Focus 2020. The Great Commission, and we're going to be discussing and describing the conversations happening right now about what is the Great Commission. Are Unreached People Group concepts valid? Are we still pressing in on uh, the concept of soteriology and salvation and evangelism and discipleship? What does church planting look like? All that. What is the Great Commission? It's going to be, I think, an excellent theme, quite meaty, and we've already begun putting together materials along that line. So the thing I like is a little bit maybe selfish, but I'm going to point you to something that was aired at the Mission Leaders Conference. It's publicly accessible. You don't have to be a Missio Nexus member to view this, but we did a compilation of a martyr uh, martyrs that came from member organizations. And not all the martyrs are there uh, because of security concerns, particularly some were pulled, uh, but... Michael Thompson, who led us in worship, played piano alongside just this uh, very stunning and somber reminder of the cost that some of us pay in taking the Great Commission to the world. And I really encourage you to watch that, uh, maybe with some headphones on, and uh, just think and pray about uh, how God is glorified uh, just by the devotion and commitment of his saints. And... um, I pray that that uh, little martyr video would spur somebody on to uh, consider the Great Commission. So thanks for listening today. I hope you have a blessed day wherever you're at.